Thank you. Y'all can have a seat. It's great to uh, see you and be here tonight. And uh, I recognize many familiar faces and a lot of faces that I've not seen. And a lot of people probably have not seen me without a mask. So uh, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Scott Moody. I am the new community pastor. I've been here six months. And literally, this is probably the first time some of you have ever seen me. Um, my family moved here the same day the coronavirus did on March 15th. So literally the Sunday that everything closed, we pulled into town. And so it has been great to be here. We're excited to be here, but certainly um, a lot different than I thought our first six months would look, but it's been different for all of us. So uh, I'm glad to be here tonight. Pastor Josh is traveling back into town, so he asked me. Um, my role at the church is pastor of community, so he felt like I should be able to do a talk on community. So tonight we're going to be looking at life and community uh, part two. So hopefully on your way in you grabbed a handout. If you didn't get one there at the back, feel free to go ahead and grab one of those. Uh, we'll be working through that tonight. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Part of what we hope to do on these Wednesday nights in the fall was to help equip you to live. And we're focusing on our discipleship pathway, which is a life of worship, a life of community, and a life of mission. And so really, we want these talks on Wednesday nights to help equip you to live. And that's my goal tonight. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, Josh gave you the definition of what we mean when we say community. And it's important to just remind you so that we're all thinking about the same thing. So when we say community, you'll see it at the top. Community is participating sacrificially in each other's lives participating sacrificially in each other's lives. And, and Pastor Josh shared with us last week from Genesis chapter one, um, how God created man in his image. And since God himself exists as a community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, since he made mankind in his image, literally every human being on the planet is imprinted with that hardwired design for community. Everybody on the planet seeks it, they want it, they desire it, but a lot of the times they go after it in really distorted ways. And so tonight, that's part of what I'm going to talk about is we don't experience this type of meaningful community all the time. So why is that? So a part of what I want to do tonight is really offer the biblical diagnosis to why community doesn't always happen the way that God designed it to happen. And so I wanted to start by sharing a, a story from about 15 years ago, which really what I feel like was my first real taste of this kind of meaningful community. My wife and I had just got married, and we had just moved up to Wake Forest, North Carolina to ascend seminary, and we found a great local church that we immediately got plugged into, and I loved it. The first Sunday there, we visited, and they took us down the hallway and said, here, these are our community groups. You're going to go to one. That's what it looks like. And they pushed us into a community group, and we never questioned that. And so we kind of were told as we went through membership that living a life in community was the normal Christian life. This was not some optional extra thing. This was what it meant to be a Christian. You live life in community. So we wanted to do that. We were excited to be in there. Uh, long story short, there was a lack of leaders. And so pretty quickly they asked, hey, would you be willing to lead one of these community groups? Um, which I kind of said, yes, I'll try to do that. And our first several months of leading this community group was terrible. It was so bad. It was, uh, we kept hearing these things like, we want you to live a life on life, life together. We want you to experience community. We want you to do all these things. And we kept trying for it and aiming for this. And, and then if I was honest, 
I didn't even like half the people in our group. I mean, they really, really bothered me in a lot of ways. And I'm sure I annoyed them in a lot of ways. Um, it was just a really awkward start. And we knew this was something the Bible called us to do. But for months and months, it was so challenging. And it just felt like sandpaper and just nothing clicked. And it was really clunky and awkward. And I remember we were just kind of discouraged. Like, is this meaningful community? I don't, I don't really know. So we continued on. We kept plodding along. And I'll circle back around to, to kind of where that ended. But essentially, the problem was not different personalities, not, you know, different circumstances. The problem was one word. It was sin. That was the problem. It was my sin. It was their sin. There were 16 sinners circled up in a group that were asked to be really intentional and honest and vulnerable. And that led to a lot of strange uh, moments to start with. So I am talking to you a lot tonight just out of experience of, of what this was like for me, what it's been like over the years. So the one truth I want us to focus on tonight, like I said, we want to get the proper diagnosis. So you'll see at the top one truth. Although we were created for community, our sin distorts it. Although we were created for community, our sin distorts it. So remember, we define it as participating sacrificially in one another's lives Kind of a distortion of that reality would look something like this. Instead of participating, maybe we avoid and evade relationships. And instead of sacrificially entering in, maybe we protect ourselves and don't necessarily want to get too messy. Um, instead of really going after people, sometimes we can view relationships. What's in it for me? How does this benefit me? And that's how we can go about community. So we don't want to evade. We don't want to run from it. We want to learn to lean into it. But our problem, again, is that sin distorts it. So I don't want to assume that we all are on the same page with what I mean by sin. It's not a word we hear a lot. But thankfully, we're in a church that, that teaches the Bible. So you guys should be familiar. But sin is essentially any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or action. So you may have heard the idea that sin can be missing the mark. You know, if you've got a bullseye, sin is missing the mark. We never hit the mark in our sin. Or maybe sin is described as rebellion against God, which it is. Or maybe you've heard sin described in terms of idolatry, which we will explore that a little more later. That is another essential nature of sin. But tonight, I really want to give you three foundational truths about how sin distorts community. And then we're going to close with some practical barriers that keep us from experiencing this community. So you'll see there in the remember this section. So first of all, we need to understand that we are all sinners by nature and by choice. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. Psalm 51.5 says this. This is a Psalm of David. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother, in sin did my mother conceive me. So David's not blaming his mom here. He's not saying she conceived me in sin. If you look at all of Psalm 51, it's David examining his heart, his life, and he sees the sin in his life. He sees the shortcomings and the further he looks, he realizes this literally goes back to birth. I was born a sinner. If anybody in here has a two-year-old, you will know from experience that I never had to teach our two-year-old how to throw themselves on the floor and pitch a fit. I don't do that. I haven't thrown myself on the floor. I haven't modeled that for them. I have, 
you know, express frustration, but literally not throwing themselves on the floor. But two-year-olds naturally do that because they have a sin nature, as do everyone. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. Not a single person in this room, not a single person on this planet is not a sinner. All of us have sinned and fall short. And then, not only is it our nature, but it really is our choice. You know, it, we could say, well, that's not fair. We got Adam's sin nature. But no, we, we actively choose it all the time. Listen to Ephesians 2, the first three verses. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It says, you were, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So do you catch that there? We were following a course. We were carrying out these desires. We were doing this. We were choosing to live out this sin nature. That's the reality for us. We were dead in sin. We lived in the passions of our flesh. It says that we were children of wrath. You may remember from two weeks ago, Pastor Josh described he was going to bring a mirror. And he described kind of this, the essence of sometimes we have the mirror turned inward and then God turns the mirror right side out. So we exist to really be these 45 degree angle mirrors that uh, reflect God's glory out into the world Really, the nature of sin is to turn that mirror back onto ourselves. And it's just this inward curve that all we see is ourself and our shadow in everything. So we have a sin nature and we willfully choose to sin. That's the first thing we need to understand. Secondly, sin has devastating effects on our relationships. Sin has devastating effects on our relationships. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis 1, 2, and uh, eventually we'll be in chapter 3 tonight. But if you're familiar with your Bible, Genesis 1, if you've ever taken time to go through Genesis 1 and just underline how many times you see the word good, it's amazing. Genesis 1 is this unbelievable picture of God speaking the universe, speaking creation into existence. And as he does this incredible act of creation, he's constantly saying, and he saw it, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. We see... This world where he has created man and woman and they live in perfect relationship with him. They live in perfect relationship with one another. They live in perfect relationship with the creation. Everything was flourishing. Genesis 1 and 2 is this world of human flourishing. God and man were together and everything was as it should be. Then we get to Genesis 3. And this is... One of the darker chapters of the entire Bible. But again, we have to understand the implications of it to understand how sin really affects humanity. So let me read in Genesis 3. I'll read the first 13 verses for us. Genesis 3, 1 through 13 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So you see, he questions God's word. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the, free of, the, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you see, he's questioning God's goodness in that. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's a lot there in Genesis 3, but a couple of things I want us to see. Number one, sin divides us. Sin absolutely brings division into the world. It disrupts everything. Again, Genesis 1 and 2 is this beautiful picture of flourishing. Genesis 3, the serpent comes in. He questions God's word. He questions God's goodness. He tempts Eve. And we immediately see this disruption in relationship. Not only the relationship, most importantly, of God and Adam and Eve is disrupted and broken, but also the relationship between man and woman. If you go on to Genesis 4, their first kids, Cain and Abel, eventually murder happens in literally the first family. That didn't take long. So we see division that happens first in marriage, then in family. It eventually, if you trace out just the entire Old Testament, by the time you get to Judges, it's really dark. And we realize that division continues. As sin spreads, division continues along the lines of race, along the lines of sex, along the lines of socioeconomic. Sin divides out and disrupts everything. It always has done that and it always will do that. The second thing that I want you to see in those verses in Genesis 3 is that sin makes us run from community. Sin makes us run from community. The fall really happens in three stages. First, you see that they sin. You see they made the decision to take the fruit that God said, do not eat, and they did. Immediately, they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. Immediately, they realized they needed to be covered. They knew that they had experienced guilt before God, and they tried to cover themselves. So, First they sin, then they experience shame, and then finally you see separation. They no longer have intimacy with God. Eventually they're made to leave the garden entirely. There is separation between God. There is no intimacy anymore with God, and there's no intimacy with other people. So today, sin still does that in our lives. When we are walking in sin, it makes us want to hide that shame and want to run away from community. That is our sin nature that kicks in. We don't want to go to people when we are in shame and sin. It separates. Not only does it divide and separate, it actually creates a hatred instead of love for others. You know, we are called to love one another, 
Again, I mentioned Cain and Abel. They immediately experienced murder in the first family. So sin can just so take us away from the way God designed it to work that we literally can become haters of one another. Listen to how Titus 3.3 describes this nature of how people are in their sin. It says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sin doesn't leave us neutral. It inclines us to a point of wanting to run from people and literally becoming haters of one another. That is the world we live in. Genesis 3, devastated relationships. It's a dark, bleak picture. Like I said, if you read the entire Old Testament, by the time you get to Judges, you realize this is not going well for uh, humankind. The third truth I want us to look at, pursuing community is difficult. Pursuing community is difficult. And I think this is a really, really, really important one. So I want to clarify a couple things here. One, part of my role as pastor of community at Prince it should not be difficult for you to connect into a way to find community. I want to make that as easy as we possibly can. Now, a pandemic has made that a little more challenging for a season, but we want it to be really, really, really easy for you to connect in some meaningful relationships with other people. So don't hear me say that should be hard. That should be easy, and we are constantly evaluating how do we make that easier. But I want to make the distinction that pursuing community this participating sacrificially in each other's lives, that's gonna be really, 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 really hard. And I think we just need to count the cost and we need to just stare it in the face and realize it's not gonna come easy. It's not gonna come natural. It's going to be hard. I think what happens sometimes is people think it's gonna be easy and they get discouraged really quickly and then they're like, okay, we're out. This is not what I signed up for. This is way too messy. It's much easier for me to be at home than to be in these relationships. But we should know that this is going to be hard. Don't let us surprise you. So I want us to look at there's three different ways that we really face opposition. Number one, the devil. Satan is real and Satan is intensely opposed to community. Satan does not want this to happen in any way. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 is really in the context where Paul is telling the church to forgive one another. And in the context of saying forgive one another, he says, forgive one another so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So there's this idea, just as he was in Genesis 3 as the serpent, he was crafty. He tries to outwit us and he puts designs in place to try to destroy and prevent real community from happening. You know the enemy's strategies are so many times divide and conquer. He wants to create division. He wants to separate us out. Uh, a lot of times, assuming the worst about a person, that is a design of Satan. If he can get you to not give somebody the benefit of the doubt, if he can get you to assume that they meant the absolute worst by how they treated you or what they said or what they didn't notice, if he can get us to assume the worst, that's going to spiral us away from community. That is a design of the enemy. If he can create bitterness in our hearts to the point that we are not willing to forgive people, that's a design of the enemy. That's straight out of his playbook. He is opposed to community. We have an enemy. He is designing things to try to 
divide, conquer, and overtake us. If you watched a football game on Saturday night, you learned how an enemy can design plays that pretty quickly overcome a defense, right? We saw uh, the Empire of Alabama design some plays that pretty quickly proved that our defense could not stay up with that. So in the same way, I'm not comparing Alabama to Satan. I don't think, Ryan, I'm sorry if that happened. Um, but in the same way that their offensive coordinator designed a game plan to try to defeat us, Georgia, we have an enemy that is designing a game plan to go after us. And we've got to, as believers, to be aware of that. So the first opposition is the devil. He is absolutely after us. First Peter 5, 8 tells us more about his nature. It says that we are to be sober-minded, to be watchful, because we have an adversary, the devil, that prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. That makes me think of those Discovery Channel like shows where you always watch the lion go stalk the zebras. And he always goes after the one that gets isolated, right? He never goes after the, the big pack. There's safety in those numbers. But the one that's got a, a hurt leg that's limping behind, the lion comes and just takes him out. That is the same way the enemy comes after us. If we are in isolation, if you are not in community, if other people don't really know you. This idea of somebody in your life really, really, really know how are you? What's going on in your life? Where are you struggling right now? If you can't think of a person right now that knows that about you, I'm telling you, you are like the zebra that's hanging out about to get picked off. That's not a good place to be. We can't be isolated because we have an enemy that's coming after us. The second opponent that we face is the world. And I think this can really be fleshed out in two different ways. In Genesis 3, uh, if you go down in verse 16 and 18, God's kind of going through and saying, everything that used to be flourishing is now going to be cursed. There's a reality. Um, there's going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be thorns and thistles as you try to work the ground. It's going to be hard. So I think part of it is circumstances are just really, really hard in a broken world. You know, we have things like pandemics that happen in a broken world that make community really, really challenging. But the second part of it is back to Ephesians 2. It referred to this idea of that we are following the course of the world, following the course of the world. That picture of course really refers to the ways that our culture and our society and the masses and the herds are running this course. Maybe it's a course of they believe that everything is just um, all about you, self-centered. They believe that um, naturalism is the only explanation for the creation of the universe. They believe that instant gratification is a right. I should not have to wait more than 22 seconds for anything. That's like the course of the world. It's teaching us, it's discipling us in this way of the world. It always makes me think of this idea of being on the wrong course. Once you're on the course and you're with the masses, it's really hard to not go that way. My previous church, there was this group of young guys and college students that did these Spartan races. Anybody in here ever done a Spartan race? Do you know what these are? People like willingly hurt themselves. Have you done one? Okay. I don't know if you've done one like this, but they were telling me about the race and it was this crazy thing in the mountains where they run 15 miles and they climb walls and they, you know, do all these things. But the craziest thing by far was on this course that they were all following was they got to a point where they had to belly crawl through deep mud puddles with these electrical probes 
with electric shock hanging down. And so if they raised up too much, it literally would shock them because they're in the water and literally herds of people are paying $250 to do this. That is like the, the picture of following the course of the world. I'm like listening to these guys going, I, I'm confused. Like you can pay me $50 and I'll shock you if you want that. Um, and I'll give you a little medal for doing it. But that's that idea of the world is just this herd that's trying to take us somewhere. And so we gotta be aware of the world is trying to take us somewhere. And by the way, it's usually not biblical community. So just a hint there. The third thing, we've got to understand that we have a real opposition. And this one is, is one of the most tricky to deal with. It's the idea of our flesh, our sinful flesh. Listen to what Galatians 5 says about this dynamic. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17. I just got a new Bible, by the way, and I can't stand it when you need a new Bible. You can't turn to the pages you used to be able to find as easy. But Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's this idea in Galatians 5 of the spirit that resides in us. If you are a follower of Jesus today, the spirit of God is in you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the realities of Genesis three are that you, you are currently still separated from God. So I would love to talk to you. If you're here tonight and you're thinking, I've never heard this, I don't know Jesus, love to talk to you afterwards. But if you are a believer, the spirit of God is in you, but our sinful nature is also still there, right? It doesn't just disappear. It would be great if it did. But it presents this idea of just this battle where the things I want to do, I don't do. Think Romans 7. And, and the things I don't want to do are the things that I do. There's this constant battle where our sinful flesh is warring against the spirit. That is a reality. That can be discouraging. Listen to this quote, though. John Piper says this about that dynamic in Galatians 5. He says that a Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the spirit. Conflict in your soul is not all bad. Even though we long for the day when our flesh will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts, yet there is something worse than the war between the flesh and the spirit. Namely, no war within because the flesh controls the citadel and the outpost. Praise God for the war within. Serenity and sin is death. The spirit has landed to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. So I hope that's an encouragement. If you struggle with these sinful desires if you are struggling, if you hate those, if you are warring against those, because our disposition towards sin changed. When we met Christ, sin is no longer our friend, it's our enemy. It doesn't mean we still don't struggle with it, but our relationship with it has changed. We hate it, we wanna fight it, we wanna battle it, we wanna see less and less of it in our lives. 
So that's really good news. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. But the reality is we still have indwelling sin that just roars against us constantly. Next week, Pastor Josh will talk a lot more about the really, really good news of the gospel in fighting this. But here's the deal. If we aren't slaves to sin, why does it seem like so much that sin just wreaks havoc in our relationships and prevents community from happening? I think of the, the old hymn that our hearts are prone to wonder, right? Our hearts are prone to wonder. That's one of the things I love about Wednesday nights. We can come in here and sing together and get in God's word together and just remind each other of the good news because our hearts are prone to wonder. Like I said earlier, one of the ways of describing sin is this idea of idolatry. Really, the essence of sin is idolatry. In 1 John, at the very end of 1 John, and much of 1 John is about loving one another. It's about relationships. The last verse is just this odd little verse that says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. After he goes through all that, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So idolatry is this idea that really is rooted in unbelief. We saw it in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve chose to believe Satan instead of believe God. It's when we functionally choose to worship something else in that moment other than Christ. And that can happen anytime. It's the idea that there is not just the fruit that we see, but there is a root that is happening that really is where our hearts are at, and that's where idolatry can come into play. So think with me for a second. It's easy to focus just on the fruit. It's easy to focus on, huh, I I struggle with laziness, or I struggle with, um, I get frustrated really easily, or whatever it may be. It's easy just to focus on that and try harder to not be lazy or not be angry, but What the Bible tells us is that the reason we are struggling in that moment with anger or frustration or laziness or whatever it is, is because something other than Christ is controlling our heart in that moment. Something other than Christ is controlling our heart is bowing down and worshiping. I'll tell you, honestly, one of the things that I've seen, and once I got married, I realized this pretty quickly, like I really struggle with worshiping comfort and ease. I would see it a lot on like, okay, it's Saturday. I finally have a day off. I just want to lay on the couch and not do anything. And then suddenly like all these chores and all these things we had to do start falling on Saturday. And I just would always have the worst attitude and would be so frustrated. And it took me a while to realize essentially what was happening is I'm worshiping my comfort and my ease. If anything happened that made my life more complicated, you know, if plumbing broke, I'm really angry in that moment primarily because I'm worshiping. I want my life to be easy and this made it hard and I'm mad about it. That's sin, that's idolatry. So in a second, we're gonna go through these specific barriers, but I want you to get in the habit of trying to go, not just for the fruit up here. Don't try to just go for the frustration or the laziness or the anger or whatever. Try to start to learn and look at what's at the root of this. Why am I responding out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why am I responding this way? You're responding that way because something has control of your heart in, the, in that moment. So let's look at some specific barriers that hinder community. And by the way, if you want, I'll try to hit some questions here at the end. So feel free. I don't know if they have that number, but if there's anything you want to ask, text it. And uh, I'll try to leave a few minutes if possible to go through those. So let's look at specific barriers that hinder community. 
Some of these are just like cultural things that are just realities for us. But some of these are very, very specific struggles that we need to get a handle on. I think the first barrier for this meaningful community that we're all aiming for is time, right? We are the most busy people on the history of the planet, Americans in 2020. And by the way, Christian fellowship takes a ton of time and consistency to develop this, to cultivate this. So we've got to figure this out. We are all running at this frenzied pace. And then we're saying, I don't feel like I have community. So those two things are connected. It's not possible to run at a frenzied pace, chasing everything constantly and also have community. You have to make a choice in the moment. So let me use this as an example. So if I'm struggling with busyness and, um, and just feel like I don't have enough time, I need to start asking, why am I so busy? And I'm sure there are legitimately lots and lots of things on my plate that are God-given responsibilities that I should do. I should go to bed exhausted every night because God has given me things to go after. But what other things have I put on my plate? Maybe, maybe in that moment, I fear the approval or I, I want the approval so bad of another person and I'm worshiping their approval. Therefore, I'm not going to tell them no when they ask me to do something. And then suddenly that person asked me to do all these extra things and I don't want to disappoint them. So I say, yes, 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 yes. And then all of a sudden I've overloaded my life to an extent where I'm doing 9 million more things than I'm supposed to be doing, but it's coming through me worshiping the approval of man, not just, well, I don't know what happened. I'm busy. So I want to encourage you, evaluate your life and try to figure out if you are at this frenzied pace and you feel like that's a barrier that keeps you from community, why is that? What's going on? Look at that. Second thing is location or proximity. It is really hard to do community if you're never around each other. Very hard to do. We just learned this in a pandemic. You probably were like April and May just seemed really tough because we're all locked into our homes. It's really important for us to try to figure out ways to spend time together. But Prince Avenue is a really unique church. I bet there's seven or eight different cities. This is kind of a regional church where you've got people coming from Gwinnett and Oconee and Jackson and Clark and all these other counties that people could be in your community group and you live 45 minutes away from each other. So it's really hard to do life with them, right? That's a reality for us at Prince Avenue that is really different. We're not like the neighborhood church where everybody is like walking to the market on Saturday together and you're constantly seeing each other. We're a church that's zooming by each other on the highways constantly. And so that's a real challenge that we've got to figure out more intentional ways to overcome that. One of the blessings about being able to have a facility like this, like the tabernacle, whenever we can get that complete and get through the pandemic, we want that to be a place where these relationships can flourish and develop because we recognize this church is kind of the center point for a lot of people. A third thing is individualism. Individualism is almost like the lens in which we see the world as Americans. Like this is something that comes at us from everything from like Burger King commercials, have it your way to everything else in the world is seen through the lens of individualism. This is a really tricky one. I don't think we fully understand how much this one affects us. There's this idea that even American culture really prizes this independence. Like we don't celebrate uh, codependent day or dependent day. We celebrate independence day. And there's good things about that. But 
when it goes all the way this way, again, sin can distort it and we can have this very independent attitude or this self-reliant, autonomous, like you do what works for you, but don't step over into my world and speak truth to me because, you know, I'm my own autonomous person. That is the air that Americans breathe. That's everywhere. We got to recognize that. Another thing, what I'm calling social media illusion, and please hear my heart on this. Like, I'm not saying social media is bad. I am saying it's got a lot of challenges you got to be really careful with. But this idea of an illusion makes me think, when I was a kid, I remember going to see David Copperfield. You know, I remember the magician, David Copperfield. My dad took me to see him. And I was always blown away when it, it looked like he sawed a person in half. And you're going, I don't get it. Like he sawed through that. How are they not sawed in half? But this idea of something that looks real and you think it's happening, but it's, it's an illusion. I think social media can be that in terms of community. And what I mean by that, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, 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 so-and-so, um, I keep up with them on Instagram, or I keep up with them on Facebook. I know what they're doing. But if you really dig into that, you really don't know how they're doing. Like, if they have all of a sudden tragedy hits, you aren't in their lives. It can give us the illusion that we're in their lives because we kind of know, yeah, they just went to a, a trip to the mountains, or they just did this. But it can keep us from actually taking the step to really get into their lives. So in that way, it is a dangerous thing. So I would say social media is a great supplement to relationships. It can be a nice like launching pad or a supplement to add on to an existing relationship, but it is a terrible substitute for relationships. Do not let it be a substitute. It can fool you into thinking you have relationships and you suddenly will realize, actually all I do is get on social media. I haven't sat across from a person in a long time. Beware of that illusion. Another one quickly is selfishness and laziness. Again, it's messy. Relationships are messy. It's going to be much easier to lay on the couch and not do anything as opposed to like trying to speak the truth and love to somebody and they may not accept it well and it might get messy. We all fight that. Another one is pride. Many Christians avoid fellowship because they just think, I'm good. I don't need it. My life's not a wreck. I don't need it. Let me explain this to you. Sin is really like that carnival mirror where we can't see ourselves accurately. You all need it. Every single person in here needs it. Do not believe that lie that you don't need other people in your life. We don't have it together. I'll be the first to tell you that. Critical spirit or lacking grace. The idea, people are going to hurt us. People are going to say ridiculous things. People are going to be awkward with us. We've got to be willing to bear with people and just be patient and gentle and forgiving. That is the reality for us. Lastly is fear, shame, and hiding. We saw that in Genesis 3, this idea of um, when sin entered the world, shame entered, and then they hid, hid from God and hid from other people. People are going to evade you. They are going to not want to be around you. If you see them doing that, be persistent. Go after them. Try to sit down and see what's really going on. So let me close by telling you this. Remember my community group that my wife and I led 15 years ago, how it started off really honestly terrible for months and months, and we all got on each other's nerves, but we just steadily plodded along, and we kept going, and we kept going. And a couple of things started to slowly change it. One of those things was we started to, uh, every month we were doing a service project together at this community park, and it kind of got us around a common purpose Another thing was God plopped a lost person right into our group. And he's all of a sudden coming saying, 
I don't know Jesus. What does this mean? And then that really got our eyes off of ourselves. And we're all trying to have lunch with this guy and walk through. And we saw him come to faith in Christ. That was a huge moment in our group. But the thing that changed it the most was when tragedy hit. When my wife, Jessica, was eight months pregnant, we, um, the, the ladies in our community group threw a baby shower for her. At that baby shower was another couple. They had, they had a six-week-old baby that had just been born. And she was at the shower. That was on a Saturday. That next Sunday night, we get a call about 1030 that night saying, Lucy, uh, the six-week-old, stopped breathing. And they're rushing her to the hospital. And I remember Jessica left right away, and I went and circled through and picked up some other people in the group. And we meet at the emergency room, and I'm, it's just surreal walking in, and you see them and realize their baby did not survive. And they're holding their six-week-old with no life. And our pastor's there, and our whole small group is around them just crying and praying with them. We went back to the church office, and we stayed up all night. I bet I didn't say ten words the whole night. We just cried, and we were there with them. We had people, family stayed with us. They stayed with us. Like we rearranged everything about our schedule for like a whole week to try to be with them. We were pallbearers at the funeral. It was just the worst time. Then a month later, as they go through that, our son is born. And I remember feeling guilty that here we are, we have a healthy baby boy. And not 20 minutes after he's born, we get a knock on the door. And guess what couple is wanting to come see us? But the couple that just lost their daughter. And I remember they came in and they have so much joy on their face. And I've got a picture of them holding our son. And they were just so encouraging to us in that moment. And I remember they said, we want to get you food. Don't eat this hospital food. Where do you want to eat? And they drove like 30 miles to go get this Italian food, this eggplant Parmesan. And then they brought it back to us and they served us at their lowest point. And there were many times after that, they, they eventually had months of just wrestling with what is God's purpose in this? How is God good in this? And they really, really, really struggled. And we struggled to know how to, how to navigate that with them. It was really hard. There were times where I felt like I said the wrong thing or stepped on toes and I shouldn't have said this or I didn't say that. And it was really tough for a long time. But that changed everything. Now, 15 years later, this group spread all over the country but my wife is really good at being thoughtful, and she wrote down the birthday of their daughter Lucy in her planner that year. And for 15 years, she has written it down in the planner, and every October, she will send her a message saying, love you, friend, just thinking of Lucy today. And last year, she had the privilege of driving a few hours on her birthday to spend the day with our friend that we hadn't seen in 10 years. And just the other day, Jessica sent the text. Uh, it was her birthday again. And she sent the text and uh, the friend responded and said, last year when you came to see me, it literally breathed life into our souls. And she said, thank you for never forgetting, never forgetting our daughter. So that changed everything. But here's the deal. And I know I'm not going to have time for Q&A. But remember those first several months of that community group, how awkward and terrible it was? I, there's no doubt in my mind that that was the schemes of the enemy was trying to tear that group apart. It would have been so easy for me to say, this is just not working. Like, we're, we're just not going to do this. It would have been so easy for that couple to say, I don't really get along with you guys. Like, I have nothing in common. It would have been easy for them to drift and just say, we're going to come to church and that's it. I really believe that was, Satan was trying to tear that group apart because he knew a year and a half later, 
the bottom would fall out for that couple and they needed brothers and sisters to walk through it with them. And our lives have never been the same having walked through it with them. So I wanna encourage you, if you're in that place where you feel like it's easier for me to just kinda stay on the sideline, it's not as messy, you don't know when the bottom's gonna fall out. And I promise you, if you don't have community in those moments, it's not gonna go well because God didn't design you to go through it alone. So let me plead with you. Let's be a church that pursues one another. Let's be willing to put up with all the frustrations and all the awkwardness and all the, I don't have anything in common and let's go after people. Let, let's let there not be a single person in this church that is isolated and alone and in danger. And so it's easy to sit back and wait on other people to make that happen. And again, we want to create easy pathways for it. But I want to challenge you. Think of somebody who you are concerned about that might be alone and go after them this week. You've got some questions uh, that you can discuss with your groups. There's some applications things. I really was hoping to answer questions, but... Um, it's 7.30, so I don't want to keep you guys. But thanks for being here tonight. Uh, Pastor Josh will be back next Wednesday night, and we will continue to look at community. So I would encourage you, bring some people with you. This is really, really important. So thanks for being here. God bless, and we'll see you on Sunday. Have a good night.